You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Welcome to season three of Dedication Point. I'm extremely excited to bring you a new season of episodes about the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. This season's theme is prey. The Snake River Canyon region was set aside as a national conservation area because of its uniquely high density of birds of prey. And while these raptors get a lot of attention, the prey species that the raptors rely on are often overlooked. We seek to amend this situation in season three of this podcast. Each episode will be focused on a different species, group, or category of animals that serve as prey for the area's raptors. Of course, we have to start with the Paiute ground squirrel. This prey species lives in high abundance in the NCA and is a keystone species of this ecosystem. We spoke with a local expert who's been involved with Paiute ground squirrel research for almost 10 years. So my name is Zoe Duran. My maiden name is Tinkle. I mentioned that because most of my squirrely stuff that I was doing, like in grad school, I wasn't married yet. Um, and I, I've been working in the NCA for a little over a decade. And um, my role prior to May of this year was working for the Idaho Army National Guard as a field technician and then eventually as a uh, biologist and just this year I started my uh, own environmental consulting company so now I have Duran Environmental Consulting but doing very similar work that I was doing with the Guard. Maybe we can start with just sort of tracing like the seed of your interest sure. in wildlife in general. Yeah. Back yeah. To origins. Yeah. Oh man, like even though like the grand origin story of Zoe I in mean, biology. As far back as yeah. you want to go, yeah. <laughs> so um it, it's actually a pretty silly but maybe really relatable origin story that I fell in love with Steve Irwin. I wanted to be Steve Irwin. I didn't know what he was doing or what his title was, but I just want that energy and that passion and and certainly the connection to wildlife and connection to landscapes and the outdoors. Growing up in Colorado, um, we would go camping, go up to the park all the time. And so um, I had a really, really intimate connection with the outdoors and my family really valued wildlife. And so I thought, gosh, I wish there was a job where you could do that. <laughs> and um, and so I really came at it just as a, as a really like a, a childlike fascination and, and passion for wildlife and our wild lands. And um, certainly if there was any role I could play to enhance um, those features across the landscape. And then I moved to Idaho to go to Boise State as a undergrad. And the sagebrush desert was not something that was particularly appealing to me, mostly because my relationship with it was from the highway and it can't really be appreciated <laughs> to its fullness. Um, it's not a drive-by habitat for sure. And so as I was progressing through my bachelor's degree, I started working with Julie Heath as an undergrad doing kestrel nest box checks. I'm sure it's like 90% of biologists in the NCA probably started off doing kestrel nest box checks. And part of my job, um, 
working with a graduate student who was looking at stress hormones in nestlings that were used in research versus those that weren't. And so all that to say, my job was to go out, take nestlings from the box and sit in the truck with them on my lap for 10 minutes and then put them back. And so if that's not going to hook you to be just completely (laughs) enamored and addicted um, to working with wildlife, I don't know what else will. So after that point, it was pretty clear what I wanted my path to be, um, working something local and something meaningful with wildlife and wild wild places. And um, my first field technician job straight out of my bachelor's degree was with the Idaho Army National Guard, um, which was a really unexpected avenue to get into uh, conservation, into land management, and certainly into uh, wildlife and, and wildlife research, because um, I didn't think that the military had such a robust <laughs> uh, a relationship with um, with conservation and natural resources and cultural resources. And so um, I think that was sort of like a side benefit was understanding the DOD's role um, that they take on themselves in conservation. So it was a really interesting um, office to start working in as a seasonal field tech. So it's the life of a seasonal tech where you're only on for about six months. But in that first six months, um, we got to do everything across the board because really the Guard Environmental Office while it might not have a specific taxa or a specific species that it monitors for, it's more just we're going to monitor the heck out of everything within this finite piece of land, which is about 150,000 acres. So we did everything from measuring soil characteristics, certainly a lot of vegetation monitoring, um, and then up through the wildlife. So uh, we would look at invertebrates, we would look at the herpetological species, and obviously raptors and other uh, passerines. And then my second year with them, uh, they started a Paiute ground squirrel trapping study. And the impetus for that was that the way that we were able to monitor Paiute ground squirrels across the landscape, so over space and time, was to count their burrow entrances. And it occurred to um, the environmental office at the time that maybe we, we actually don't quite know if burrow entrances equals numbers of individuals, so we should probably do a market capture trapping effort and compare it to our burrow counts to see if it's an index of population size or if they're correlated at all. And so that's kind of how I got introduced to ground squirrels in particular, was I was a technician. I was just a field tech, and uh, we started this trapping study um, under the guise and the guidance of uh, Dr. Eric Jensen, who's a huge name in the ground squirrel world, and particularly here in Idaho. And we started doing this trapping study. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that trapping and handling adorable small mammals is it's gonna be something that someone's gonna get interested in. But I was actually just really drawn to the fact that this is a keystone species in this area that's so important for conservation. And it's a keystone for the actual taxa that we're trying to conserve. And we know very little about it. And so that mystery to me was so appealing. (laughs) And uh, my boss at the time at the Guard, Charlie Bond, um, he kind of set me up on a blind date with a professor at Boise State, uh, Dr. Jennifer Forby, and basically said, hey, we have a ton of squirrels. Your sample sizes will be huge. Do you want to take on this student who's been a really great technician for us? And so I kind of got introduced to grad school in that sort of unconventional way. And then from there, Again, there's such a gap in the NCA for small mammal, particularly prey research, that 
I was a little bit on an island, but that was kind of exciting. Everyone else was doing, you know, trapping and banding birds, which was really cool. Or maybe they were looking at vegetation and habitat, but I was kind of the lone wolf out there doing ground squirrel stuff, which was wild to me, but also made made me have maybe a little bit more connection and a little bit more ownership of what we were doing because it was it felt like it was filling a, a needed gap. And so ever since then, even after my master's research ended, um, when I got my full-time biologist position at the Guard, we all agreed that this is an effort that should continue. And so as far as I know, really the Idaho Army National Guard is the only entity within the NCA that's doing active annual monitoring of this really critical prey species. And so I'm doing my best to just try and stay as involved with those efforts as possible. I mean, you're right. It's so fascinating to me how much importance is placed on that ground squirrel population in the NCA and yet how little effort has been put forth to right. to understand that population it's you know as compared to the amount of effort that's been put forth to understand the raptors the birds of prey right maybe you can just go back for a minute and like introduce us to the ground squirrels in the NCA what is unique about this population. Yeah, so Paiute ground squirrels are uh, an endemic, very small species of in the family Sciuridae. So they're squirrel, obviously. Um, but if you're not familiar with ground squirrels, if you look outside and you see the tree squirrels that are hanging out in your backyard, they're actually very similar to ground squirrels. But as the name would suggest, they actually live in burrows in the ground. They don't have these big fluffy tails. Um, they have very small tails because they don't need to balance on these, you know, very small limbs. Um, they kind of look like a small potato <laughs> that's just sort of scurrying along the desert floor. Um, and so, and they're just a little bit smaller than a tree squirrel. But they behave in very, very similar ways. And they, they represent, they actually, you might think of them more as like a prairie dog type situation, except that Paiute ground squirrels and a lot of other um, smaller ground squirrels species don't really exhibit a whole lot of like colonial behavior in the way that a uh, prairie dog would, where you have colonies, where you have matriarchal groups and things like that. Um, Paiute ground squirrels are a little more ubiquitous across the landscape. And so, um, yeah, so picture little potatoes running around the landscape. Um, they're relatively adapt to more, uh, to various habitat types. We can find them both in our native, you know, intact, pristine habitats, but we also tend to find them in our uh, exotic dominated um, uh, areas. So they're, they're relatively plastic in the habitats that they can uh, inhabit or occupy. And this area in particular is very interesting and this ground squirrel is very interesting in that in the densities just the sheer densities that occurs out on the on the nca so there's been some reports and some publication publications both empirical and otherwise that have claimed that this population of Paiute ground squirrels in southwestern idaho off the snake river is the densest population of ground squirrels ever any, in any parts of the world. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I think one could make a really good argument that it's, I don't know, top 5%. It's a really unusual and unique assemblage of this particular um, type of small mammal. And they're really important for two 
main reasons. And the first is is one that's very inherent that we understand is, is that they're the primary prey species for the birds of prey in the birds of prey area. So they really are the keystone species that's kind of holding that whole uh, system together. And the other part that makes them so uh, integral to that habitat is that they're fossorial, so they are digging, which means essentially they're providing their ecosystem engineers of the NCA. Every time they dig, they open up some of our, our soils tend to be very, uh, uh, they're not moisture rich, they're not very nutrient rich, and so they become very hard very quickly. And so what ground squirrels do is they punch holes into that ground the same way you would aerate your lawn every spring because you want sunlight and nutrients to get down to that lower level of soil so those roots can penetrate deeper and wider. Ground squirrels are doing that just out in the sagebrush desert. And so they not only play a huge role as being what everything else eats, <laughs> but they also play a huge role in just how vegetation functions and the habitat functions through their ecosystem engineers. So they're them playing that dual role and the just sheer numbers that we have out in the NCA or that have been observed out in the NCA make them special and it's what makes the NCA a special place. So if we go back to that analogy of the bedroom versus the pantry, the Snake River itself, that canyon, that is, is incredibly unique and provides all of the nesting substrate. But your bedroom would be pretty empty if you didn't have a nice supply in your pantry. And I think what's crazy is is with ground squirrels, and, and this isn't to say with Paiute ground squirrels that we don't know anything about them. There is a huge effort and a huge amount of research that's been done that I, that I definitely don't want to not mention. In the 80s and 90s and a little bit in the early 2000s, there was a plethora of... Uh, of literature that came out, particularly when they were trying to decide whether or not to have the NCA be designated. So in the early 90s, late 80s, there was a big collection of research that was being done on Paiute ground squirrels led up by people like Beatrice Van Horn out of Colorado State, certainly Eric Jensen. Um, we had Karen Steenhoff and uh, Steve Kinnick that were kind of offering more of the ecological importance and the connection to raptors. So there's a huge suite of, of literature that was put out in that time frame. And I think what a lot of those papers said, or at least how they were interpreted, was we have plenty of squirrels. We're good to go. And I think we just sort of took our eye off and just sort of took for granted or and maybe it is still true that we just have a ton of ground squirrels out there. We don't really need to worry. But as you can imagine, and I'm sure everyone knows, especially if you live in Idaho, the conditions between mid-90s versus where we're at now and the pressures within the NCA, both those human-caused and climate-caused, they're immense and they've changed a lot since the 90s. And so I, th I think that's another thing that just made me so interested in this species was there's a big gap temporally in, in our, our thumb on this population, for sure. I do want you to explain the seasonality of it yeah. and when they're above ground yeah. and then when they like go back below ground and how that works. Yeah, so Paiute ground squirrels, uh, they kind of live a pretty cool cush life. So they, uh, they emerge, uh, males, uh, adult males tend to emerge before females in like the January, early February timeframe. And then adult females will emerge after that. 
Um, they get to mating right away. And then um, around that late February, mid-February time frame is where you start to have gestation. Gestation, gestation takes uh, about 30 days. Um, and then the young are born in the maternal burrow. That takes another 30 days for them to fully wean. And then they pop up above ground and they're pretty self-sufficient after that. And so we're in about the March-April time frame when we start to see juveniles pop up um, above ground. And then from mid-April until probably the end of June, all juveniles and adult males and adult females are above ground and this is great for raptors because it aligns really nicely with when they need to be feeding babies right and so you probably have the most amount of ground squirrels above ground when you have the most amount of uh, caloric needs for raptors which is no you know that's that's no accident that's why they're here um and so then once the summer months start to hit and the temperatures get really high and our native and our non-native uh, grasses start to desiccate, that's when you start to see them go below ground. Um, so adult males will be the first to say see ya because um, they've been able since the beginning of the year to start putting on weight, putting on weight, putting on weight. And uh, so they'll be the first ones to go below ground. And then in early, mid-July, the adult females will go down and then the juveniles will try and stay up as long as possible, just to try and pack on as much weight as they can because um, they're taking on a big risk going below ground if they don't have the fat stores to get them through the rest of the year. And for the most part, they stay underground from late July until the following January. And so when we talk about raptors, you know, and you think about when you start to see them arrive and when you start to see them leave, it matches so nicely with the ground squirrel um, phenology throughout the year, which again is no accident. Um, and another thing that we don't understand about ground squirrels are kind of those smaller scale indicators of when to emerge and when to go below ground. Right. We don't know the thresholds. So when we talk about climactic changes, if we're gonna see earlier, hotter, drier summers, does that mean that ground squirrel availability temporally is now going to shift and they're not gonna be as available later into the breeding season for raptors? We don't know that because we don't know if there are kind of hard and fast indicators for ground squirrels to go back below ground or what indicators there are for them to pop up. Right. I've heard some reports in the fall, if we have a lot of uh, fall rains and cheatgrass sometimes can do like a fall green up. Mm. Even poa sometimes, uh, the native perennial grass can have like a little bit of green around the basil leaves. And uh, some people have, have said there's ground squirrels up, which just blew my mind because I'm like, they're sleeping. But I would imagine there's some sort of cue that if there's a nice wet fall where there's some sort of greenery that they could eat, that they could pop up. Sure. eat for a little bit, go back down below ground. Sure. Um, so yeah, so they're really only available for a really fi finite amount of time. They have a lot to get done during that <laughs> finite yeah. amount of time. Um, and uh, yeah, they're a really, really interesting species. They also, um, they don't like rain. <laughs> they're kind of a nice uh, study species because they don't like it too cold. They don't like it too hot. Yeah, they're really being fossorial mammals. You know, they've never really had to deal with getting wet. And we've had some in uh, in cages waiting to get processed. And we had one of those little burst storms that ha happens out in the NCA where you get these desert storms that just come out of nowhere. And so we had some soggy squirrels and it took like an hour of just getting them you know, dry, uh, holding them in front of the vents in the truck and everything, uh, and just, uh, we were able to revive all of them, but they were just really struggling with even a tiny bit of moisture. And 
with some of the climactic models, we might see much more precipitous, less cold winters, mm. which means that the precipitation is falling in an area where we don't usually get rain rain in those types of in those times of years. And it'll be interesting to see how that interacts with forage availability for them. And then how that may or may not impact how they approach their phenology throughout the season. Right. Or if they can even handle it. If we come just like monsoonal out there, right. we just will never see ground squirrels above ground. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you can take us back to that first season of work you did uh, out in the NCA once you got that job working with the guard and you're sort of introduced from like a biological and like a research perspective to this population of ground squirrels for the first time and you start like learning about I imagine you started like learning about the research that had been done and then also like starting to see the gaps and I mean I wonder if you can like break that down for me like what did we know and how significant was that gap and you know what was your first step to try to like answer some of those unknowns sure so if you go to google scholar right now and you punch in paiute ground squirrel idaho you'll get quite a bit of literature that'll pop up um but something that's important to remember is that in the mid 90s late 90s early 2000s ish uh taxonomists we love taxonomists but they decided uh, to start breaking out species. And these there were seven subspecies of ground squirrels that were all under the umbrella of Townsend's ground squirrels. They were kind of called like the Townsend's family of ground squirrels. And so they were all under the sper- Spermophilus Townsendii, and then Paiute ground squirrels were mollusks, but they were still called Townsend's ground squirrels. Then they did all their taxonomic magic, which I can't get into because I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Definitely beyond my area of expertise. But they split out things like Miriam's and uh, Paiute ground squirrels from Townsend's ground squirrels. So really, when you talk about Townsend's ground squirrels now, you're only talking about a very small subpopulation that's at the like extreme southern edge of Washington, like kind of in the Yakima Valley, essentially. What we have in the NCA are Paiute ground squirrels. So again, if you do a liter- literature research, you'll have to look up both Townsends and Paiutes because the papers were published under both of those taxonomic names. But um, so what the main focus of a lot of the early research on Paiute ground squirrels was about their demography. So where, where and when are they assembled essentially? How did their um, population dynamics change over time and space? So pretty, pretty, simple ecological questions that really got out where are they right now mm-hmm. how do they fluctuate or vary across our landscape and in some cases over time but a lot of those studies were pretty um truncated in the amount of time that they had you know funding for and things like that and so the at least for mark recapture studies three three five years is about the the uh, limit for those data which for a species like this and rodents in general that are these boom and bust species that uh, experience these really high highs, really low lows, but that kind of takes several years to kind of figure out what that pattern is. And then throwing in the things like plague that might have a really big impact on population, it takes a much longer time frame. So I think that was maybe the first gap is a really long-term reliable data set, um, which they were trying to get at with these burrow counts. And that totally makes sense. And the literature at the time said, hey, you have a fossil fossorial mammal, do burrow counts. And that's how you're going to get your population density fluctuations over time. So in 2013, uh, so the guard had been doing those burrow counts the same way that they were, uh, the methodology was developed in the 90s and the early 2000s. And so they were doing them across the landscape. 
And in 2013, the question arose was, well, what are these borough densities telling us? Yes, we can say that, well, boroughs went up or down, or there's more boroughs in this habitat than this, but we don't know how that actually relates to the abundance of actual ground squirrels. And so the hope of this was essentially to do a validation study of the borough counts to say, okay, borough counts are great. It just means that it's about half as many squirrels. So there's like a two to one. So if you have 50 boroughs, that means you have 25 squirrels. We were kind of hoping to figure out what the index that the borough counts were telling us. Because mm -hmm. with this species, it's not a one-to-one -one where an individual has a borough and that's it. Um, they use their burrows, especially since we don't have big structures like trees and things out there for uh, canopy cover. They use these burrows as escape mechanisms from predators. And so they could have maternal burrows, they'll have their uh, hibernation estivation burrows, they'll have just little burrows that are kind of U-shaped that only go like four or five inches below ground. They're just escaping from a raptor overhead, right? And so one squirrel could use like, I don't know, six, 10 different types of burrows. And so the, the logic was there that maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not a two to one, maybe it's a five to one. And what we ended up finding is that it varied so much more than we thought. And that we, with our mark recapture study, we could have the same amount of squirrels at two sites, but since one of them had shrub cover and the other one didn't, the one without shrub cover almost had twice as many burrows because they're great for right. escaping from predators. And so we're like, okay, okay, so it doesn't mean a one-to-one -one with squirrels, but that also varies depending on the habitat you're in. And are we gonna be able to sample every single type of variation of habitat to equal burrow counts to number of individuals? So at the end of that 2013 study, which again um, was led by Dr. Eric Jensen, basically the conclusion was burrow counts probably aren't a great index of how squirrels both vary over time and space. Um, which just happens all the time <laughs> in ecological research, you know, methodologies get advanced. Um, and so you might find yourself on 10, 20 years of monitoring data that maybe doesn't mean what you thought it did. Right. And so now it was just about refining it. And I don't think this means that burrow counts can be completely thrown out. We don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we need to understand a little bit better the mechanisms that drive ground squirrel variation across time and space. Um, some of the other earlier research was looking at dispersal rates. So they put even just like little GPS collars on ground squirrels and um, see how far they went from their natal range. If it was more males than females, what age they disperse, et cetera. So just kind of basic biological questions. Um, and then certainly the biggest one was what habitats do ground squirrels occur in higher densities? Mm -hmm. And this was more of a management driven question of what type of habitats do we need to be protecting from wildland fire? What do we need to be restoring after wildland fire, um, et cetera, in order to promote the not only high densities, but uh, consistent densities over time. Mm -hmm. And so those were kind of the basic questions that were being asked, not basic, because it's there was a, those are difficult ecological concepts. Right. And so that was what was getting tackled in the 90s. And then there was just a really big gap between then and the mid 2010s. Um, when we started doing our work, there was pretty much no one looking at ground squirrel populations. Again, I think it was just a given. We have a ton of them. So there's really no management implication behind needing to track them every single year. And so in 2013, um, the initial question really was just, 
are we monitoring for them correctly, right. accurately? Right. Um, which is a big question. And yeah. I think everyone with long-term data sets should think, huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Given new methodologies, have I been making assumptions that maybe are completely untrue? Which yeah. is a scary thing to tackle. So I understand yeah. why there might be some hesitancy. But basically, um, from that 2013 mark recapture, you know, borough count validation study, um, the guard was like, okay, I think we need to just continue to mark recapture now mm -hmm. instead of uh, continuing on with the borough counts. So they did end up discontinuing their borough counts. And then every year since, they've been doing a mark recapture effort of Paiute ground squirrels. And so um, mark recapture is just a fancy, well, it actually, it's not even a fancy way of saying <laughs> that we capture them. We mark them with a permanent mark, which is a small little subcutaneous pit tag. Um, it's what they use for fish and looking at fish going through dams and everything. Um, and so we just scan the squirrel and it has a small little tag under its uh, skin. So the nice part is it stays its whole life. We don't have to, small mammal people, we don't have to clip toes or dye them or anything. Um, and so that's what they've been doing um, since 2013. And I think the overarching gap wasn't necessarily that we don't understand where they prefer to live. In general, they prefer native habitats. In general, they're more stable in native habitats with shrubs. We know this. Um, this has been pretty well documented and well um, uh, substantiated by a lot of other studies. Um, we know that they prefer not to live in cheatgrass dominated areas, or at least they don't occur in as high of densities. Some diet studies have shown that they'll preferentially they will go out and seek, you know, our native perennial grasses before, even if there's 90% of the site is cheatgrass, they'll try to find that 10%. So they'll eat disproportionate to availability if there's perennial grasses, especially if there's perennial forbs that are available at a site. And so they, they do prefer those native habitats. Cool, we know that. I think what we don't quite know is some of the mechanisms that are driving the population dynamics we see. Yes, they fluctuate up and down, but especially in a subset of the NCA in the Orchard Combat Training Center, the vegetation conditions haven't changed as drastically as we've seen in other parts of the NCA. Um, cheatgrass actually isn't as big of an issue in those areas, but we still see annual fluctuations, even if we just look at one year or one site, a nice sagebrush dominant site, we were still getting huge fluctuations from year to year without any mechanistic explanation for why that's happening. And so I think now what the study foci are and what they should be is not just looking at, can we just capture the variation in a snapshot and see what's going on on the landscape? There is that, but I think we want to step back and look at what are the mechanisms driving the fluctuations that we see. And it's it's hard to measure in a rodent because those those you know changes happen so quickly. They have these big boom years, big bust years. But it's what makes it so important to be continuing to do this on an annual basis rather than every five years, every three years to come back and and look at the populations because you might just get a snapshot of a really bad year or a really, really great year. And then you're making management decisions thinking you have all these squirrels out there. <laughs> but really the next year they could bust. Gotcha. So what was um like what was the focus of your master's research? Yeah, so there were kind of two main um, components of my master's research. The first was really management driven and it was just to do a, to take that 
since 2013. So I entered my um, grad program in 2014, ended in 16. And so as to take that, the first chunk of that market capture data, um, run them through uh, some more sophisticated modeling um, that takes into account things like detection probability and just help the guard understand densities across. We had eight different sites and those eight sites varied in their vegetation composition. Um, and included one type of habitat that wasn't present in the previous studies because it was a plant that wasn't used on BLM lands yet. So forage kosher um, has been a management um, tool for uh, the BLM and other agencies as a really good fryer resistant species that can outcompete things like cheatgrass. Obviously, it's not a native. Um, and this was actually one of the things that I wanted to do as my main research for my grad uh, project was looking at Paiute ground squirrels and forage kosher. No one had done that yet. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine BLM would want to know if they're planting forage kosher in the NCA, what that's doing to the primary prey species. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially uh, what we found, and, and it's hard because at that point we only had three years of inference, you know, but it was so drastic. We essentially saw no ground squirrels in forage kosher. In years where there were high densities in other habitats, so sagebrush in our um, Sandbergs bluegrass, those types of native populations, the forage kosher, there were days that we only caught a couple squirrels, mm -hmm. which in our other sites, we the most we caught in a day was 300 squirrels in about six hours. So when you're only catching like three, yeah. it was a big deal. And so, you know, after three years when we could say, okay, it's not a methodology thing, it's not a seasonality thing, it's not a time, it must be a habitat thing. Um, so from that, it was it was pretty apparent. The, the guard had already said they don't really want to plant forage kosher anymore for other reasons, for uh, endangered or threatened plant species. But now, even more so, if it doesn't provide habitat for Paiute ground squirrels, then they didn't want to plant it in the training area. So that was a good management um, tool that came out of that research. So that was just all about population dynamics. Um, that was the first part of my thesis. The second part was a little bit more on the empirical and a little bit more on the theoretical side, where we were looking at personality of ground squirrels and how personality influences those uh, population dynamic factors. So population dynamics is how many are birthed, how many die, how many immigrate, how many emigrate. So in particular, I was looking at the, uh, at the feature of survivorship. And so we were looking at essentially how do hardwired behaviors within individuals influence their survivorship. And so when you think about animal personality, this was always like the first five minutes of any presentation I gave on my grad research is I had to explain <laughs> that animal personality is not exactly like they like long walks on the beach and <laughs> they're, <laughs> yeah, they're really talkative, things like that. Um, it really is just a way of measuring consistent behaviors that are likely hormonally driven and hardwired. Okay. And so what we were looking at was called like the shy bold spectrum. Shy individuals have more stress hormone levels. They tend to avoid risk at all costs. So they will forego things like eating, breeding to make sure that they are safe, that they survive, right? Sure, 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 yeah. Survive above all else. Yeah. But as you can imagine, maybe that's a detrimental thing over time because you're not going out and reproducing or you're right. not going out and getting food maybe when you need to. Right. 
Bold individuals are the opposite, where they don't care if there's a hawk overhead. They're going to mate first, and they are going to get that poa secunda first. And so what's really interesting about these behavioral suites, because they are kind of more hormonally driven, which is a genetics component, it's not like one day a squirrel's going to be bold, one day they're going to be shy. There's certainly, you know, decision makings from day to day based on experience that kind of change decision making but for the most part these individuals were extremely consistent in whether they were going to display bold behaviors or display shy behaviors and the better way to think of it is risk adverse versus risk prone sure. so bold individuals they don't care about risk they're going to just go 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 mm-hmm. so um this obviously can be important if because everything that happens at the individual level then gets expanded to the population level And so one of my questions or how I was hoping these data would be used is ground squirrels are obviously prey, but they are also a target for human target shooting, essentially. And some of the behaviors that bold individuals would display would make them more likely to be hunted by human hunters, essentially. And so if we are essentially artificially selecting against bold attributes, are we creating a very shy population? And this was seen in elk. Um, So in a hunted elk population, they did some behavioral assays prior to a hunting season and then compared that to the tags that were brought back at the end of the season. And by and large, their bold individuals were the ones that were harvested more than the shy individuals, which makes sense because they won't forage in the open there. If they hear a UTV, they're out of there. Mm -hmm. And one that what that paper started to suggest is that you know, some state, you know, fishing game agencies are reporting the same densities of individuals, but because their behaviors are being selected against those bold behaviors, you're actually creating an entire population of shy. And so hunters are like, where are all the elk at? Hey, you need to stock more elk in here. And they're like, they're there. But we've essentially behaviorally, (laughs) we've filtered out the behaviors that are more likely for them to get shot. And so... Where that intersects with raptors is if the bold individuals are the ones that are more likely to get shot, Mm -hmm. they are also the ones that are more likely to be out in the open and huntable Mm -hmm. by raptors. And so are humans not only competing with raptors just by killing off a certain proportion of just available squirrels or just alive squirrels, but are they actually taking the behavioral (laughs) puzzle piece Mm -hmm. out that the raptors are used to queuing in on? So that was more of a theoretical, basically in the, in the two years that you're allotted for your master's degree, I was able to measure behavior, which was really cool. Um, and then uh, shown that if we were to do a population model where we wanted to understand survivorship, usually in these ecological models, you'll take into you know account age and sex and maybe mass and things like that, and then put them all into a model and get your survivorship. And if we just added uh, behavior it outperformed just those demographic features for uh, predicting survivorship by a lot, and so that I think that what that told us is that the behavior at the individual level is really starting to accumulate and create these population level fluctuations. Mm-hmm. But what's cool? So bold individuals uh, had a, a really strong relationship with a or negative relationship with survivorship. So the more bold you are, the less likely you are to survive. We expected that. But when we broke out, we we trapped in two different populations, one where there was sagebrush cover and one where there wasn't. 
that negative relationship between boldness and survivorship was very, very apparent in our grass population, but was basically no relationship in our sagebrush population. Right. Probably because the consequence of being bold when you have a bunch of sagebrush overhead is a lot different than being bold if you're out in the open. And so that was kind of cool right. um, to think that this maybe isn't a whole blanket relationship, but probably varies by the habitat features that are present and helps us as land managers understand that, well, our population densities, and this is true from our trapping data, that the population densities in our sagebrush population, which had an understory of native perennial grass, and then our populations that are native perennial grass were actually very equal and fluctuated similarly year to year. But <laughs> they actually mean completely different things when it comes to survivorship of those individuals. And so maybe the birth rate is just really, really high at those POA years. But I think what's going to happen is that you see these years where, where they're dependent on the boom and bust, where you have to boom, boom, boom really high after a bust. Is it becomes very difficult if now the climactic features or there's a fire that comes through or someone sets up shop to shoot ground squirrels there that year, it's much, much less likely that they'll be able to bounce back from that versus a really stable population with sagebrush overhead. Right. So I think this, this helped us to understand that sagebrush is not only a, an important component just for the system itself, but if you're looking for not just, I want a lot of ground squirrels right now, I want to see a lot of ground squirrels over time, and sagebrush is a huge component to that, probably from a behavioral perspective too, right, right. and thermal. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the question at the heart of everything that's going on in the NCA, yeah. right? Is like, what is the effect of this dramatic shift in the landscape, right? From all these fires, um, you know, making this, creating this transformation, um, and this really dramatic reduction in the amount of shrubland w within the NCA boundaries. And I mean, you know, you, you pointed this out. It's like, you know, this was identified in some of those studies in the 90s, right? That like the ground squirrel populations are more stable in the shrub areas and less stable in cheatgrass dom yeah. dominated areas right. right you're sort of learning more about the dynamics of that and a answering the, the why yeah right, right. and i think you know when we do these snapshot in time studies that really can only be inferred to the time that the data was collected sure. then on any given year potentially we're not even talking about plague dynamics at this point because then everything goes out of the window it's really crazy but on any given let's say normal year which i don't know if we have anymore mm. um you probably go out and trap more squirrels in sagebrush habitat than you would in cheatgrass. And I think that's valuable. But I think, you know, a little bit of what this behavioral assay was trying to say, and certainly where the research is going now, is understanding why. Because mm -hmm. you can say this is how it is, but if you don't understand why, there's no way we can put that into any sort of predictive model to say, to look back into time, to say, how have squirrels changed over time and how does that relate maybe to raptor populations? And then certainly I, I know a huge need and want for biologists in the NCA is to be able to predict out into the future. Are there mechanisms or are there factors that impact say Paiute ground squirrel populations and how are those gonna fluctuate with population growth? How are those gonna fluctuate with climate change? How do those all interact with each other? And so getting at the why is now I think the important task versus what is. Mm -hmm. I think we need to know what was and what could be based mm -hmm. on those mechanisms and that understanding. Totally, but it's like we also need, we need more than the why too, right? Because it's like, 
if we know that there's greater fluctuation in cheatgrass dominated areas and more stability in shrubland and even if we know specifically why that's the case that doesn't tell us which is better sure. you know what i mean like sure. when i mean i do this all the time right it's like when i talk about the more stable landscape it's insinuated that that's better sure right sure um and and you know usually we're saying that we're insinuating that's better for the raptors right? right because it's like it's the birds of prey nca that's what most people care about like right. you were talking about but like there's other factors too and it's like complicated sort of i guess that insinuation that is inherent in a lot of this stuff which is like that the more stable population is better for raptors doesn't necessarily play out with like the data and what we're learning about raptors and about like the, the ecosystem and how it's changing in the yeah. nca right because it's like we know now that there are more prairie falcons in the NCA than there were back in the 70s. It's a part of like pulling apart this puzzle. Mm -hmm. The habitat is severely degraded and yet there's more raptors. Trying to like tease apart the why, like obviously climate is a huge component of that. Mm -hmm. um, but also like understanding the dynamics of the most important prey population is like a huge piece of that, right? Yeah. and. That connection is also something that's never really been explicitly tested and something that I hope this future research is going to start going towards is, sure, say we get to the point where we understand most of the variation that happens across time and space of this ground squirrel. So then we could t can do some population models. But then you get to the question of who cares? Uh, all right, well, okay, so there's gonna be more ground squirrels, there's gonna be less ground squirrels. Where's some thresholds where it actually starts to become apparent in the raptor population, which is the whole reason we're managing for this prey species anyway. Mm -hmm. And so those are the connections that I haven't seen as explicitly in the literature is, is going up from habitat. I think we can understand a little bit better the relationship between habitat and ground squirrels. Does a prairie falcon really care if it's hunting in shrubs or open grassland? It probably would prefer to be in open grasslands, to be honest. It's a lot easier to catch them. But ground squirrels certainly care if they're in open versus uh, shrub habitat. And so I think, you know, our, our if we only looked at raptor populations and say we only looked at prairie falcons, then this the study that says that we have more prairie falcons than we had in the 70s and the 90s would seem like a win. The NCA is great, we're good, mm -hmm. foot off the gas. Mm -hmm. But what happens with that pantry, if you get more and more visitors coming, but ground squirrels are on a downward decline, then what you'll start to see is that, you know, Lotka Volterra doesn't take no prisoners, right? Like right. it doesn't discriminate. And at some point there's some threshold of ground squirrels and other prey populations. We've seen this with black-tailed jackrabbits where either prey switching needs to start occurring but we don't know when we get to that point. And we also don't know what threshold is meaningful for raptors as far as the ground squirrel population. And so even if you're low years, you're still seeing, let's say a density of 20 squirrels per hectare, which some of our studies were showing 45. Who cares? Like they're still there, they're not gone. They're not extirpated, is right. that good? But does that actually support the type of density and diversity, frankly, of breeding raptors that we see in the NCA, and that's a puzzle piece we have not put together yet. Right, and it could be because of 
climate change that that there's going to be more significantly more raptors utilizing that landscape can the prey base like sustain that you yeah. know and like can the prey, prey base sustain that given that a significant percentage of the habitat that keeps their population stable has been eliminated and then add the pressures of human hunting onto that at least it's more spatially explicit than things like climate but if you start to add all of these things start to become additive and cumulative to each other that if we don't have stable populations across the landscape the boom years might be fine and maybe that's what we've been seeing a lot of but the bust years could be really detrimental and i think there's at some point you get below a threshold in your bust years that you're never going to be able to quite get back to those boom years the way that were, Mm -hmm. which in a raptor perspective means that we're not going to be able to support the densities that we're seeing. But again, ground squirrels aren't the only thing out there. (laughs) There are other prey species, Mm -hmm. but the ground squirrels really are the most available, the most dense, um, certainly during the breeding period. Yeah, the thing we didn't even talk about is that ground squirrels are only above ground for five, six months out of the year. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Which the NCA, we usually talk about breeding raptors, Mm -hmm. but in its legislation, it doesn't specify what time of year we should be caring about raptors in this area, conserving raptors. And uh, I think that's something else that we have very little understanding of, and this is just getting off the ground squirrel tangent and onto other prey, Mm -hmm. is the availability of prey when ground squirrels go below ground, when when your pantry is yeah. doesn't have chips ahoy in it anymore <laughs> the one thing you want and you need the most i don't know why chips ahoy but like you're you're missing your main component of your sure. prey what sure. fills that gap because it's not that we don't see raptors during the winter totally. we still have raptors out there right and there's more of them than there used to be yeah, yeah. Exactly. uh and that's kind of like a teaser for future yeah. episodes because each episode in this new season of dedication point will be focused on a different prey species yeah. um, or a different group yeah. of uh, a category of of prey species in the nca and i wanted to um, touch back on one thing too yeah, yeah. you know it, I think no matter how many times we slice this, it's it's going to end up probably being that, you know, maybe not pristine, but intact sagebrush habitat with native perennial understory is the best, in quotes, for ground squirrels, both across time and space and to deal with those fluctuations that normal rodent populations have. And so if we wanted to say we want, and, and really, the crux of it is for raptors, if it was a Paiute ground squirrel show um, and it was the NCA for Paiute ground squirrels, then yes, just jam that thing as much with sagebrush as you can. But with raptors, like we were saying, it's not exactly the best hunting scenario for it to just be a complete, you know, monoculture of sagebrush habitat. Mm -hmm. And that's not how this Snake River Plain looked. It was very patchy and actually some areas in the NCA and in the OCTC have really dense sagebrush that might actually be working against <laughs> the ecological function we want them to be. It's the canopy coverage, as you can think of like really dense forests. Like a fire should have burned that by now, even though it shouldn't be at the eight year time frame. It should be like every 250 years it burns. But there are some areas that are really, really dense. And so from a raptor perspective, not great. And so over time, the Snake River Plain, if we say back in the day, 
it was more patchy with intermittent um, grasslands and sagebrush and sagebrush with really big inner spaces. And so the availability of ground squirrels to be hunted was probably higher in those sagebrush areas. Um, and so, yeah, if, if we were just managing for ground squirrels, we could say, put out sagebrush and perennial grasses and you're going to be great. I think what we were doing um, at the Environmental Office of Guard, we weren't trying to fill in every single patch with more shrubs. Um, a, it's very difficult to get shrubs to establish. So restoring, I know you guys talked about this on the last uh, season of the podcast. It's really difficult habitat to try and uh, rehabilitate. But um, even if we were getting 100% success, we didn't want to fill in every gap because that's not the best from like a, a raptor hunting and heterogeneity in a habitat mm -hmm. is always going to be better than homogeny for sure. Um, so I think, you know, along the gradient of acceptable habitats or habitats that Paiute ground squirrels can occupy, if, if you were looking for a target of the most amount and, you know, most stable over time, then you're probably your sagebrush native perennial habitat is your pinnacle. But when you tell that to a land manager, it's like shutting the door in their face before they even get started. To say your only hope of restoring this for ground squirrels is to make it literally the hardest thing to do out there, which is get old growth sagebrush and native perennial understory. Mm -hmm. And it's not true. Like you were mentioning, they live across this huge gradient that goes all the way to cheatgrass. Mm -hmm. And so on that other end of the spectrum, it becomes a little scary to say to land managers, cheatgrass is fine. They live in cheatgrass. Mm -hmm. And so that just goes back to if you just infer based off of snapshots in time or even just long-term data that show, yeah, well, there's X amount of squirrels pretty annually in these cheatgrass habitats, it, it misses those mechanisms and why cheatgrass, if cheatgrass were to continue to expand as a habitat within the NCA, then essentially you're taking away the densities, you're taking away the stability that was available in those other habitats and trading it out for a less stable, less abundant population. And as that accumulates across the area and across time, we just start to see those booms and busts. If you can imagine like an oscillating boom and bust cycle, um, like you would see in most rodents, mm -hmm. your booms just start to not go as high, your busts go lower. And mm -hmm. so your average densities over time, your average abundance over time just starts going down, down, down. Right. And when do we reach a threshold where it no longer supports the raptors? Or if we become a sink where the raptors keep returning, right. expecting the same conditions from a prey perspective, and every year just keeps kind of building on right. the last worst year. So like, do we know where we're at, right? Like. It, the the monitoring that has been done since 2013, like, do we have any sense of whether the population, like the average is increasing or decreasing or remaining stable? Yeah, so it's really hard to say. Um, there were so many assumptions and limitations both on our mark recapture efforts and on the historical mark recapture efforts that they're really difficult to compare to each other. Mm -hmm. I would say overall, we're seeing the same patterns of use in, in terms of what are the preferred habitats versus not so great. Um, but again, like I mentioned, the mark recapture studies that were done in the 80s, 90s were really limited to like three to five years. And really what we found is that there were temporal variations we were seeing in year seven, year eight, that we were not expecting. We thought we had it all figured out. And then we actually had a plague event pretty much like right in the middle of our trapping. And it changed right. everything we thought we knew right. about where ground squirrels should be and at what densities. And then it kind of went back to normal. Hmm. 
so I think that there's a lot this temporal variation because it's a short-lived species I think folks think you you know you choose basically the lifespan of the species and try to do your study for that long so three to five years essentially I think what we're finding is it's not necessarily about just births and deaths at this point locally it's Mm -hmm. more about these other environmental factors and those vary across a much bigger time scale which is why getting other monitoring techniques other than mark recapture which is really resource you know intensive Mm -hmm. is really important and we don't quite have that answer yet um except (laughs) <laughs> so I, I kind of said I was the only one looking at ground squirrels, and that was true when I was in ground squirrel or ground squirrel in grad school. Um, but just recently, in the last couple of years, we got a new professor at Boise State, Dr. Jennifer Cruz, and she has been really interested in prey populations on the birds of prey NCA. I'm sure you guys will chat with her about uh, uh, black-tailed jackrabbits. But she's really interested in twofold creating those mechanistic um, models for ground squirrels. Um, how they've reacted not only to what the vegetation or habitat looks like now, but how that habitat has changed over time using long, long-term vegetation monitoring and modeling. Um, and then linking that up to prairie falcons with her other grad students' research and understanding, you know, is it just where ground squirrels are most dense? That's when that's where prairie falcons are hunting, or does that not matter? All of those things will help us understand a little bit better in, in connecting that relationship between ground squirrels, where they are, where they might have been, where they might be in the future, and then how prairie falcons are adjusting to that landscape. Um, but the other thing that she's looking at is this methodology component where Doing market capture trapping gets you a bunch of really valuable data, but your sample size of your sites is usually really limited to your resource availability. And so, like I said, the most sites that we've ever done in a year is eight. And even that is a lot of effort. It's a lot of traps. Um, if you want to make sure that they're comparable to each other, you have to do them in a very short time frame because ground squirrels are only above ground for five months. And so their life history or their you know tactics throughout the year, what life stage they're in, changes from week to week because they have to breed, you know, gestate, they have to wean, they come above ground, and then they're basically below ground. So if you get only like three weeks off from one trapping site, it's really hard to compare them because they're at completely different life stages already. Right, right. So it's a difficult thing to do with this species in particular. And so I know managers are very interested in getting a burrow count type um, passive monitoring or monitoring where we can do better spatial coverage, um, better strata coverage. So we can do a lot of other vegetation types, things like that. And so what Dr. Cruz is looking at with her lab right now is essentially doing point counts for ground squirrels Mm. and then comparing those to the mark recapture um, results that we're getting. And um, what she's finding is that the point counts are pretty good at telling us where there's occupancy, which is pretty easy. Where there's squirrels, if they're vocalizing, if you see them, obviously that's something Mark Recapture would show us too. But she was able to have over 70 sites and look at that variation. And instead of doing discrete categories of habitat, she can look at percent cover and have more of a continuous variable to understand that gradient a little bit better than right now. We've only just looked at discrete habitat categories Mm -hmm. and said, Mm -hmm. well, this is sagebrush. It must be important. 
But there's sagebrush with varying levels of inner space. There's sagebrush with varying understories. And that type of detail has not been captured in our marker captured trapping. So she's really trying to develop this point count methodology, which I'm really excited about because we could ask so many other questions. We could infer so much more across a larger landscape um, than we would just with our marker capture trapping for sure. squirrels like most a lot of rodents um are susceptible to disease and plague like the plague bubonic yersinia pestis the bubonic plague is something that is sort of a natural component of the ground squirrel system if you think about rodents if you think about like mice scurrying all over the place there are these kind of natural checks and balances on those populations so they don't get so huge um obviously our raptors are a big component of keeping those populations in check but if it was just raptors, there's so many ground squirrels out there, even with people shooting them, their reproductive rates, that they can have six to 15, 14 uh, young per litter. <laughs> so in good years, they're just pumping them all out. Yeah. So with these kind of exponential growth populations, disease plays a huge role. And plague is kind of the, the disease that plays that role in this population. And so um, we were really fortunate, you know, we didn't set up a study design to have plague happen in the middle of our trapping, but I'm really glad because it, it, it created a lot of new questions about plague. But I think it also dispelled some thoughts that we, we thought were true about plague in that it would affect the ground squirrels very evenly across the landscape. And we did not find that. Okay. Um, I think, you know, when you think about disease and when you think about it's it's so plague is caused by a bacteria that's carried by fleas those fleas live on ground squirrels fleas bite ground squirrels get bacteria right and so if you think about you know the dynamics of disease and of invertebrates then it makes sense that when you have a really dense population that are sharing a lot of fleas and things like that those are probably the populations that are going to get hit first or hit get hit the hardest. And what we found is in our populations, like our sagebrush population, our native grass population, those were seeing the highest densities that we had seen across our trapping so far, and they were the ones that were hit the hardest with plague. Mm -hmm. And really the only way we were able to confirm is that we tested a few that we found just dead on the ground, which in a desert ecosystem, there's never carcasses on the ground. <laughs> Every single part of every single animal is eaten and utilized by something because it's such a, you know, it's it's a desert. It's mm -hmm. it's a calorie desert landscape, right? And so if you come across a carcass, you're gonna eat it, especially if you're a ground squirrel. If you come across a, you know, um, they eat each other, uh, dead each other. They're necrophagic. Um, and so it was really weird to just see a bunch of ground squirrels on the on the ground. We had them tested through Fish and Game, um, came back positive for plague. And so we kind of assumed that was happening across the landscape. And what our data showed was that it was happening in our really, really dense populations. But then like our cheatgrass and our forage kosher populations increased that year. Interesting. So we don't know if we maybe had individuals moving away from high dense populations as some sort of uh, way to mitigate for disease. Um, if there's some sort of carrying capacity that individuals won't, they'll move away from a population in order to uh, avoid disease. No idea. But if we, you know, yeah, plague, plague 
no matter what is going to reach the system, but is it going to be that big of an issue if we just no longer have dense populations? Right. Maybe not. Right. <laughs> but then we have other problems on our hands yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, You know, here I am, a fresh biologist and, you know, a field technician, and I am working in an area with really dense human activity, um, both the military, but then especially uh, recreational shooting. It's a hugely popular activity in the Birds of Prey NCA. And in particular, not just target shooting, but shooting ground squirrels for sport. And I was observing that and thinking, wow, this is the species for all of the raptors. And so it seems very strange. <laughs> First of all, just from a political standpoint, just seems very strange that we shoot the prey of the thing that we're trying to conserve. Again, this is just kind of me not understanding, you know, maybe public land use and things like that, where it's all a balancing act. But I was just really interested. And then I, I think I, at some point, asked a question of, well, how many squirrels do you think are shot every year? And it, does it matter? And the crickets <laughs> were so loud that it was just, it was bonkers to me uh, in the same way that we didn't quite understand a whole lot of just basic biological things about ground squirrels in this area, um, that we didn't have a foothold on how shoot, just direct shooting. We're not even talking about lead yet. Just the direct take of individuals out of the population that we couldn't quantify that. We still can't. Um, and then, after noticing their behavior, you know, ground squirrels that are shot are obviously, well, not obviously. I think one of the schools of thought was, well, ground squirrels are so small, this bullet is traveling so fast that it's not like a deer, it's not like an elk, this giant thing that where these fragments will kind of congregate, like that would lead to gut piles, like the issues with vultures. And so, okay, in grad school, I had some undergrads that wanted a cool project. I was like, cool, will you go collect dead ground squirrels for me? <laughs> <laughs> and so we had them collect shot ground squirrels, um, again, with all of the proper caution because fleas like to jump off of dead things and I didn't want any of my undergrads to get plague. But we had them collect uh, shot dead ground squirrels um, and with Fishing Game and their collaboration, we we're able to run them through their x-ray essentially and photograph lead or if there was any lead in those carcasses. And what we found is that over 75% of these shot ground squirrels had a, a, a noticeable amount of lead fragments left in them. Um, some of them, 92% um, had some sort of, like 92% a portion of the body, or at least a little circumference around that bullet point was, sure. had lead fragments and up to like 250 fragments. And these are pretty small fragments, but they're not nothing. Um, and in a separate study with Todd Katzer and Matt Stuber, they were testing blood of Phrygianus hawk nestlings. And what they found was they were able to detect lead in these Phrygianus hawk nestlings, but that they would vary between nestlings within the same nest. And what that told them was that it's not an, a baseline environmental exposure to lead. So say there's an oil refinery, or there's some sort of environmental contaminant. 
what they surmised from that is that one of those nestlings just got the bad bite of a squirrel with a with a fragment in it essentially Mm -hmm. and so once we started kind of start to build that story up became apparent that carcasses on the ground could be a threat to breeding raptors um especially with the volume (laughs) that they collect squirrels Mm -hmm. the probability of encountering um a a squirrel that has a lead fragment in it is actually pretty high yeah. depending on where they nest and where they forage which is another reason why getting those nice fine-tuned gps data understanding where people are shooting ground squirrels and where raptors are nesting and then overlaying those to see where we have potential um, areas of conflict are super important and then it occurred to us that i was like well ground squirrels eat dead ground squirrels um, and we have seen that with shot ground squirrels that it's actually really difficult to survey for ground squirrel carcasses after a shooting event because they just get dragged into the burrows by other ground squirrels. And so uh, we were finding, you know, within 30 minutes of a ground squirrel getting shot, that's probably the earliest that you'd actually start to see ground squirrels come out and drag them underneath the burrow. So we did do some uh, carcass density surveys trying to account for that Um imperfect detection and we were getting anywhere between you know 15 to 35 squirrels per hectare that were being shot um which is a high amount um and is probably proportional to the densities that are available to be shot but Mm -hmm. still it's a pretty high amount Mm -hmm. um and at least a portion of those are staying above ground and available to raptors we're finding mostly ravens some harriers and badgers were the ones picking up shot squirrels the most and then the rest of them were getting picked up by other ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. And so now you have live ground squirrels that have ingested lead. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, in raptors especially, there's not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that lead bioaccumulates up the food chain, but a lead poisoned squirrel is going to be just raptor fodder for sure. It's gonna not be, it's gonna be disoriented. All of those like non-lethal impacts would would still impact ground squirrels quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And so it's all of these different impacts of lead that it's not just like you guys have discussed before, I think you guys have discussed before. So shooting in the NCA, obviously there's the issue of raptors being shot illegally, oof. And then there's ground squirrels being shot completely legally and without any bag limit or anything but then left on the landscape and that can impact raptors. Mm. And then ground squirrels having those sublethal lead impacts from eating other squirrels that were shot. And so you kind of get all of these different impacts um, that are either direct or indirect from the act of recreational shooting in the NCA. Yeah. If somebody was totally unfamiliar with the whole NCA and the scenario there and the relationship with the guard and Mm -hmm. all those complexities and you were to like tell them like lay out the basics of this lead uh, ammunition issue that you just explained. I think most folks would probably assume that the guard would be the agency that would be afraid to touch the lead ammunition issue and the BLM would want to address it, but it's actually kind of opposite. At least it seems that way to me, but like, I'm curious about your perspective because you spent so long working with the guard how receptive they are to this issue surrounding lead ammunition just because it's very politically tricky? Sure. Yeah, and I I can't speak to, you know, the motivations certainly behind BLM wanting or not wanting to touch certain issues. And I I really feel for where they are as a conservation um, 
agency or, or where they act in a conservation framework because it's not their only it's not their only mandate right. as, sure. as a public agency, right? Sure. And the same goes for the military. Mm-hmm. You know, their number one mission is to ensure that there are sustainable training lands into the future so that we can fight our nation's wars. And so to think that the military is also doing these ground squirrel trapping and looking for raptors and passerines and things seems really non-intuitive, um, but it actually fits really well into the military mission that not only is the military mission to protect our you know, freedoms essentially, but it's to protect our resources and our natural lands, our natural landscapes are absolutely one of our highest values as Americans. And so the military takes a big pride in being a part of that, you know, protection. We're not only protecting life and your property, but we're also protecting our wild spaces that we enjoy. And so I think the Idaho Army National Guard takes that part really seriously because we're we're pretty or the national guard here in idaho is pretty unique in that their military training lands are completely within blm lands and not dod managed lands um so they are publicly accessible and so you do have this landscape where you have both the military and the public in the same space and as the conservation office for the guard uh, that i was that i used to be a part of um our main focus was to try to see what was impacting or measure what was impacting you know, landscapes, the habitat, the birds of prey, prey species, and attribute those or see what the relative impacts are from both potentially public land use versus military use. And so it was kind of always, you know, yes, there's an impact happening, but how much can we attribute to the military versus other factors? It wasn't always the public. It's, you know, we have wildfire, we have climate change, all of those types of things. And so, you know, the military, especially the OCTC being in a national conservation area for birds of prey, the primary uh, goal was to measure all those things that are important to birds of prey and see what the relative impact of the military was and then either eliminate that impact or reduce it or mitigate for it. But what I can say just from a relative impact to raptors or what the potential impact to raptors could be is that you know the military at least for if we're just talking about lead, has a very finite space in which they conduct that training. Um, It's been the same space over time. Um, It's super, super limited. And when we talk about in the scale of like a raptor um, territory, it's very small Mm -hmm. versus the rest of the NCA that's available for shooting and certainly in the areas that are the highest density of shooting, the spatial extent is extraordinary. And so I think it just goes back to what's the probability of a raptor encountering a lead fragment, which is really what we're worried about. We're not necessarily worried about the bioaccumulation from squirrels eating other squirrels. We're worried about just those fragments. Mm -hmm. The military is not directly shooting squirrels. And so there shouldn't be just squirrel carcasses with fragments in the military training part. Um, so we're doing that, I guess. <laughs> and um, But what we were finding in the uh, public shooting areas is that probability of encountering a fragment is probably going to be much, much, much higher um, than ingesting a squirrel that maybe ingested a fragment, right. that type of thing. Right. And so, you know, we can look at the snapshot of how it's affecting birds now. And I think that's something that's something good to keep in mind is we... We don't have a super accurate estimate of how many squirrels are shot every year. Just to understand what's being removed from the population and not available to raptors. So we don't understand that. Mm-hmm. 
We also don't understand how many of those shot squirrels are left and available to raptors and how many of those raptors are actually encountering them. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know if it's even meaningful, the amount of squirrels that are being shot, if it's even meaningful that a couple raptors get, you know, a fragment here and there. What I always come back to is what was in the enabling legislation for the NCA, and it was to have uses that are compatible with the conservation of birds of prey. Mm -hmm. And so I think as long as that's the question that's always at the crux of these, uh, of evaluating these potential impacts, is to always just go back to that initial question and decide if it's compatible or not. And I think that's where we talk about meaningful thresholds and those need to be developed. That's absolutely what needs to happen in order to, for us to say with a straight face that this is compatible or this is not compatible with data-driven science. There's so many questions and it's so complex and it's like that classic conundrum. The more you know, oh, yeah. like the more you understand how little we actually know. I think that's it. that was one of the, my favorite quotes coming out of grad school was someone asked me, um, you know, what do you think, what's the biggest thing you learned in grad school, which is a, a funny question, but it, it was more just, I don't know anything. That's what I learned in grad school. I know nothing. I went in thinking I knew everything and I came out, I know nothing. And uh, it's a humbling experience being a research biologist. was our conversation with Zoe Duran, former wildlife biologist for the Idaho Army National Guard and the founder of Duran Environmental Consulting. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast and the organization that produces it, you can head over to birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership on Facebook. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wildlands Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme song is by Like a Rocket, and additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website for a full list of credits. Thank you.